Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, we're going to have an interview with Father Sean O'Laddy. Sean O'Laddy is a Catholic priest and licensed clinical psychologist specializing in transpersonal psychology. He regularly lectures and conducts scientific research on the effects of prayer. Dr. O'Leary's other books are A Sensible God, Spirits in Space Suits, it's a manual for everyday mystics, and um, Souls on Safari. By the way, he's also a co-founder and spiritual director of Companions on the Journey, a popular Silicon Valley spiritual community which seeks to recognize the God divinity within the self. Dr. O'Leary has a private counseling practice in Los Altos, California. Before we go directly to the interview, a few news and notes in psychology and medicine. Before I say anything about these news and notes, I want to make a disclaimer and say that what I'm about to say does not represent KZYX or its employees or anyone else affiliated with the station. This is uh, coming from yours truly only. I, I'm, ver- I'm disturbed. I'm very disturbed um, about news that I, I came across this week in the paper indicating that that we have uh, two and a half million homeless children in this country. Is, is anyone else out there disturbed as I am? Uh, I mean, I'm asking myself, I mean, how disturbed is disturbed? How should I be angry? Should I be upset? Should I be anxious? Annoyed? What emotions are appropriate when I read that two and a half million children, two and a half million children, two and a half million little children are homeless in our country. What, what does this say about us? What does it say about each of us? What does it say about our country? What does it say about who we are? What are we saying to the world when we have people who can buy a home? I read recently a home for a billion and a half dollars. A billion is a thousand million. A billion is a thousand million. A billion and a half dollars for a home, and there are children homeless. In California alone, there are over 500,000 children who are homeless. They're out on the street. And at the very same time, we have people buying homes for a billion and a half dollars. We, we have people driving around in cars that cost $350,000. Am I the only one that's upset by this? What about, what are you all thinking about this? Do we feel impotent to do anything about it? Are we all so much caught up in our own lives just trying to make sense out of life trying to put food on the table and shelter over our own heads that we that we don't have energy time resources to even think about what it means that these children are homeless let alone what they experience 
perhaps our guest today can help us shed some light on this issue. Were you able to hear what I was saying about the homeless children, Sean? I got that segment the first two or three minutes, which was absolutely horrifying, and I'd be very happy to respond to it. Please say something to us about that. I'm, yeah. bes- I'm, I'm, rather, I'm really upset this morning. I, I'm be- really beside myself to, uh, about, uh, about the, the numbers are staggering, and what it says about who we are is, is, is reprehensible. What's your view uh, on this, please? Right, here's my view. There's, um, there's a great quote from George Santayana who said one time, those who do not learn from history are destined to repeat it. And as I study world history, I see the same cycle, you know, in all empires, beginning with the Sumerians in, you know, 6,000 years ago, followed by the Egyptians, and then the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, then the Romans, then the Spanish, then the British, then the Russians, and now us. And we go through the same four cycles. There's been an extraordinary study done of uh, the Chinese Empire, which is probably the longest-lasting one, beginning about 2000 BC and coming right down to 1949. And it's been very well documented by their own historians, and they see four, four phases to the cycle. It's the hero, then the sage, then the merchant, and then chaos. So the hero is the stage when some a great character rescues the populace from a previous tyrant. So um, uh, crime goes down at that stage when the hero comes along, living conditions improve, the status of, of women is, is uh, much, much better, um, there's an emphasis on building infrastructure, and that leads into the second stage, which is the sage. And now there's an emphasis on the arts and sciences and philosophy, you know, and again, women's status is very, very high, the public is being protected, crime goes down. And then the third stage comes and it's called the merchant. And at this stage, we get involved in foreign wars and we start imposing taxes on the populace to, you know, to justify these wars or to kind of finance these wars. Crime goes up, protections for the individuals go down, women's rights go down, the infrastructure begins to crumble. And then stage four, finally, is the chaos. Things just fall asunder. You know, the populace goes into revolt or else some outside invaders come in you know, and the whole cycle starts again. And I think in, in our country, we're in the, in the uh, merchant into chaos part. When you mentioned about, you know, a billion and a half dollar houses, it's a fact right now that 85 human beings own more assets than the bottom 3.5 billion human beings right now. And so, I mean, that cannot continue. Not only is it disgusting and unjust, but it is, uh, even financially, it cannot continue. So something is going to have to give, you know, in order for us to extricate ourselves from this situation. The idea that a half a million children in, in California are homeless in, in a country with our abilities and our resources is absolutely mind-boggling. It is criminal. We elect people to create laws, to govern us, and to a certain extent provide security for us. How, how do we go so far afield when regular folks like you and me and our neighbors, we don't want these children to be homeless, and we would never vote to make them homeless, and yet we create a situation in which they are homeless? I, I don't get it. So we have, we have an, an Irish proverb that says, Rawa idhar gawr 
And it literally means a choice between two blind gods. I'm really upset at the political system in this country right now because in some senses it doesn't seem to matter who's in charge of the White House or the Senate or the Congress. You know, it's a, the choice between two blind gods. These people seem to be owned by the corporatocracy and they're not serving the needs of the citizens like their mentor. We the people is a bit of a laugh at this stage and it's we the corporations that seem to be making the choices. So all the choices are predicated on what's good for corporate and it's not corporate in America anymore. Because these corporations have no they have no patriotism whatsoever to this country. They're international, you know, Robert Barons. And the agenda is just more money or more control. So uh, whether we vote in Democrats or vote in Republicans, it doesn't seem to matter because they're like, they're like puppets and on, on strings by the corporatocracy. In your book, A Sensible God, you talk about what you consider to be the great moral issues of our times. And I think the great moral issues of our times are directly connected to what we're talking about now in terms of values. Please, I want to talk to you about these moral issues. The first one that you list is protecting and nurturing the planet that protects and nurtures us, the ecology movement. Right, right. We are literally, I believe, Richard, the phrase I've used sometimes is where spirits and spacesuits were sold on safari, where bite-sized pieces of God who volunteered for incarnation on planet Earth. And the idea of incarnation is to test ourselves in all configurations and find out, can we love anyway? And so I think I am a real big believer in reincarnation, that souls get as many opportunities as they want on planet Earth to test ourselves, you know, and say, if I found myself in these kinds of circumstances, could I be a loving being anyway? If I found myself, you know, with an IQ of 170 and an athletic body and a rich family, could I have compassion? If I found myself in a crippled body, you know, at the IQ of 85, uh, in an, an impoverished family, could I learn to love there? If I were a slave girl in North Africa in the 1300s, could I learn to love anywhere? And so the object of the exercise is to test ourselves against our ability to love. But when we come into this planet, we're subject to um, four limitations. Firstly, we trade cosmic intelligence for this tiny little laptop that we carry between our ears. We, you know, we uh, substitute the spaciousness of an intergalactic being for a little 150-pound carcass that we call our bodies. You know, we, uh, our brains are so small that we have to break up the gestalt, the bite-sized pieces, you know, and process them sequentially, giving rise to the illusion of time. And then finally, there's amnesia created in us for who we really are. So 95% of us are asleep at the wheel. So I'm convinced that nobody volunteers for incarnation in compromised circumstances unless there are others volunteering to have the abilities and the resources and the compassion to reach out to them. But those of us who have the resources, you know, feel that it's our birthright, and those who don't have the resources are angry, and maybe rightly so, because we've broken the contract. We've forgotten our part of the deal. Are you, you, know? sa are you saying that you believe that 95% of us are asleep at the wheel? Seems like certainly those in public positions, those with the ability to legislate or make the kind of fiscal decisions necessary, they seem to be asleep at the wheel. I think there's actually a, there is a great movement, and it is unfortunately it's not coming through the churches, it's not coming through the political process, it's not coming through the mass media, apart from you know programs like your own, you know, and it's not coming through you know, uh, the education system. 
you know, it's uh, little groups meeting, you know, brainstorming, networking, and trying to, sh to shift the consciousness. And it will succeed. But it, we're looking at a, a time of a tremendous travail in the interim until we begin to wake up, until we get at least 10% of us awake and like the rest of us then get it by osmosis. So in some senses, it's a chaotic time, but out of chaos comes complexity. You know, this great, um, there was a great Russian biochemist who won the Nobel Prize for biochemistry in the 1970s, a guy called Ilya Prigogine, uh, for a theory that he called dissipative structures. And it resolved a huge uh, problem for science that science had wrestled with for over 100 years. And it is this. If the second law of entropy is true, which states that all systems run themselves down into chaos left to their own devices, how then can evolution proceed and create more and more complex organisms? And he solved the problem with what he called dissipative structures. And he said what happens is that some systems learn to dissipate the entropy out of the system and to reorganize the components into a higher order of complexity. And so I give you a simple kind of an illustration of that. Imagine you're working on a jigsaw puzzle, and there's 500 pieces. And you're going pretty good. You've found the four corner pieces. You've identified the straight lines. I know you're building up the picture, uh, and you've got two, two kind of hints, the contours of the pieces and the colors. So you can see, you know, are you building the image that's on the cover of the box? But at some stage, if you've done crossword puzzles, you're left maybe with 50 or 60 pieces on the side. And no matter where you try to insert them, they won't fit. No matter how you angle them, and you're really frustrated. And then you come to this awful realization that there are several sections you've already created that are actually wrong. They seem to be right, but you realize that when you look more closely, they're not actually fitting properly. And you have to have the courage to disassemble those pieces and then redistribute them. And all of a sudden, you can fill in all the missing pieces and the puzzle is complete. Now, that's what chaos is about. It is about reconfiguring the elements in order to create the ideal combinations that bring about the picture on the box. And the picture on the box is the face of God. And so it's like, I, I keep saying to people, life is like a jigsaw puzzle. When you buy a jigsaw puzzle, you have to make an act of faith that everything that's there is necessary and everything that's necessary is there. There's no extra pieces. You're not going to wind up with 10 extra pieces and you're not going to wind up with a hole in the jigsaw puzzle and have to go down and buy 10 more pieces. Your life has everything you need. Our world has everything it needs. Everything is there. It's only a question of reconfiguring the combinations in order for the face of God to emerge in the human culture. Why would an all-powerful God create a jigsaw puzzle that has within it so much human suffering for such a long period of time? Or because in the yeah, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Richard. Well, I mean, unless unless five thousand years is not a long period of time. Uh, or 10,000 years or 15,000 years, if it's really just a second in, in God's world, well, then maybe it isn't very much suffering. But for, for us mere mortals, it appears as though a very high percentage of us have been suffering for thousands of years. And I'm asking the question, why would an all-powerful God create so much suffering when an all-powerful God could have created a situation with less suffering? Right, so I'd say two responses to that, Richard. The first thing is, it has nothing to do with God. This is, these are what I call preconception conflicts among souls who want to test their ability to grow and to love. So it's not God who's, you know, uh, manufacturing or fabricating these situations to test us. 
It's the souls themselves who want to find out just how loving could they be. So God is like uh, a parent inside a house looking out through the back window at kids playing cowboys and Indians in the backyard. You know, the, the mother is not going to intervene unless there's real problems there. She's going to let the kids figure stuff out for themselves, you know, and re- resolve their own difficulties. And the second thing I would say is that the strange thing is that in the absence of human suffering, it is impossible to develop human compassion. Suffering is a necessary ingredient on the road to compassion. Otherwise, God could have created automatons, uh, computers, you know, who are so bright they never make mistakes, but they would, they would have no ability to be compassionate. And so the journey of incarnation is a journey from uh, being asleep to being awake, from being self-concerned to being compassionate, and going from free will to freedom. Free will is the ability to do as I please. Freedom is the ability to do as pleases God. And so the only truly free person is the person who's making decisions to love. To the extent that I'm making selfish decisions, I'm addicted to some form of suffering. And so suffering, in a very, very strange way, is the chaos out of which compassion emerges. So when you're referring to God, you're referring to every single one of us and all of us combined. I've got this weird theory that imagine... Uh, you have a hive of bees with 30,000 bees in it. And every morning they have to operate as a clump and a cluster, and they have to try to squeeze their way out through the uh, hive and fly in this big clump of bees and try to land on a flower someplace. Probably the only place they could land would be a sunflower. And they may land on two or three sunflowers and then come back to the hive. And they've generated maybe three experiences. But if they have to operate as 30,000 discrete, ontologically separate entities, and they go off in different directions, they're going to land on a million flowers in the course of the day and come back to the hive with hundreds of different kinds of pollens and a million different stories. And so in some senses, God, unity consciousness, makes a decision to self-fracture in order to generate experiences. Because as unity consciousness, there's nothing to experience. There's, there's only the me and the now. And so this extraordinary... Um, a notion which in Christian, you know, mysticism is called kenosis or self-emptying is a kind of fracturing in which God, in order to generate experiences, has to divide herself into literally billions of beings. And everything alive is having experiences. Rocks are having experiences as rocks. Flowers are having experiences as flowers. You know, bees are having experiences as insects. Humans are having experiences as humans. And we're bringing all that extraordinary experience back to the hives. You know, and we're trading it with each other because, in some senses, there is unity in this diversity. So the entire system is benefiting from the experiences of all the parts. You're listening to Father Sean O'Leary. He's a Catholic priest, a licensed clinical psychologist, and we're here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Sean, you say in your book that the truly huge moral issues of our times are health care, housing, and education, without regard to color, creed, nationality, or language. Are we making progress in those areas? The strange thing is, Richard, in spite of all the indicators to the the contrary, we are making progress. When you actually look at the the, the kind of the sweep of human history, particularly over the last 5,000 years, you know, let's say with the agricultural revolution in 3000 BC, the equation changed very, very significantly. But when you actually trace uh, the amount of violence and injustices in our world, 
You know, uh, there's actually a really great book written by a Harvard psychologist called The Better Angels of Our Nature, and he traces um, human violence, uh, both interpersonal, intercommunity, and international. And in spite of the vicissitude that we experience on a daily basis and the wars and the rumors of wars, there's actually a huge diminution in the amount of violence in our world, interpersonally, internationally even, you know, and the amount of injustices. So people are outraged now by things that, you know, former generations would have taken for granted. You know, even, even stuff like animal rights. In the time of Shakespeare, and we're just talking less, less than 400 years ago, you know, it was a great pastime to go to a theater to watch a cast being tied up and lowered into a fire, into a brazier, as the audience applauded while the cat was screaming in agony. Or you look at the, um, the Inquisition that literally pulled people apart in the 14 and 1500s. I mean, although some of that goes on in a clandestine fashion, when it comes to a, a public awareness, people are outraged by that. So in actual fact, in spite of the, uh, the apparent chaos, there is, in fact, there's light emerging from this, and people are actually, yeah, we are developing, we are evolving. So it becomes very important for us to begin, you know, talking about that kind of stuff and promoting that kind of stuff because you know, the mass media are, are just promoting the opposite. There's really good stuff happening, but we're not hearing a whole lot about it. Have you heard of what's called the prison of three generations? No, I haven't. What is that about? The prison of three generations is a prison containing hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions of people and when they're taken to prison, everyone in their family is taken to prison with them. Everyone in their generation above them, their parents and their grandparents, are taken to prison with them. And their children are taken to prison with them. And all their relatives are taken to prison with them. So if one person gets in trouble and violates the law in some significant way, several hundred people can be taken to prison. And these people of three generations, that's why it's called the prison of three generations, r spend the rest of their lives in this prison. As a result, people are born in these prisons, and the only knowledge they have of the world is prison life. They are taught that this is the world. There is no other world. Furthermore, they're taught in these prisons that to try to get out of the prison is a major crime. And so that they, in order to be cooperative, good citizens, they must turn each other in if they find out that someone is trying to escape. The way we know about this prison is someone did finally escape not too long ago. And I saw a documentary film that was made about this fellow. And he relates how when he got news that his mother and his brother were going to try and escape, he did the right thing as a good citizen, and he turned them in. As a result, he then got to watch while his mother was shot and his brother was hung for the crime of attempting to escape. In the documentary, he was asked, how did you feel watching your mother hung and your, and your brother shot? And he said, well, I felt quite good. I had done the right thing. He there, by, by saying this, he demonstrated to us the pervasive nature of complete brainwashing. But it was more than brainwashing because he was born in this prison and he lived his whole life in his prison, so his whole world was the prison.
this takes place, by the way, the, the prison that I'm talking about is in North Korea. Um, when, I, when I hear of such things, I understand what you're saying, that, you know, in Roman times, yes, they would decimate. The word decimate is to kill one out of every ten. Sometimes they killed every single person. They would level a city and kill every animal and everybody, and, and we don't quite do that anymore, though if you read accounts and see, you know, pictorials of what we did during World War II, it isn't that far removed. Uh, you know, I'd like to be able to agree with you, and I hope you're right that we're making progress it seems like it, in some ways, for us mortals who have a short period of time relatively on this earth, the progress is very slow. Um, healthcare, housing, and education, you say, are the moral issues of our times. And we have 500,000 children homeless here in California. What do you think people who are listening to this program and programs like it might be able to do in some small way? for these children? Well, the first, the first thing that you do is becoming aware of that. That's the first stage of changing any system. I'm aware, you know, of the injustices of it. And I'm shocked to hear this three-generational prisoner model. I mean, it sounded almost like Plato's cave as you began describing it, that people who are indoctrinated from uh, childhood or from even birth in some instances, obviously, that is the only reality that they know. And so our sense of our sense of ourselves as individuals and our sense of the culture is impressed upon literally wet cement during the first seven years of our lives. So it becomes very, very important for us to break out of the um, the enforced identity we have as individuals and as a culture and begin thinking outside the box. And that's the that's the era of the the, the hero, the person who comes in and breaks out of that system somehow. So people like yourself who are you're bringing this to, to public consciousness, that's the first stage of waking people up. When people begin to wake up, they very, very quickly realize that you can make changes initially at a very, very local level. Not everybody, not everybody is going to become you know, a Mother Teresa or a Mahatma Gandhi or a Martin Luther King Jr., but everybody is part of a community. And when we start uh, reaching out, to the homeless in our own midst, or the kind of the, the people who are suffering from health issues in our own midst, and we begin just helping out neighbor to neighbor, that's how, the, uh, we, that's how we build up the momentum. And so it's really about acting locally while thinking globally. I would even say thinking cosm cosmically, because I, I believe as well that we're, we're one civilization among hundreds of millions of civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy. And that there are, there are angelic realms and that there are dimensions of intelligence far beyond human beings who are more than happy to assist us and to try to intervene. And uh, you know, Roman Catholicism would have called that the, uh, the communion of saints. So it's important for us to realize that we need to uh, act in a very, very local communities, but that we're actually part of a civilization which is literally galactic, which is multidimensional, and therefore we have resources available to us way beyond just the political process of the corporatocracy. Sean, you're a student lifelong of human nature. You're a Catholic priest ordained. You're a highly educated, trained, licensed clinical psychologist. Tell me, it, when a person... When a person who's buying a home for a billion and a half dollars, when a person who has a private jet plane and all the accoutrements, when, when a person who, can, who, who goes in and, and writes a check 
for $400,000 for a Rolls Royce and drives away. When, when that person shaves in the morning, if they don't have a beard, or when they brush their teeth and they look in the mirror, do they think at all about 500,000 homeless children in California or two and a half homeless million homeless uh, children in the United States? Are they a different species of human being than you and I? How do they face the mirror in the morning? So let me use the analogy of a kind of a sport. If, if you're, uh, let's say, a tennis player, you tend to hang out with tennis players and you tend to kind of, even in your ordinary conversation, use metaphors from tennis. If you're a football player, you hang out with football players and you use metaphors from football. If you're a chess player, you hang out with chess players and you use metaphors from chess playing. If you're part of this corporatocracy, you hang out with corporocrats, you know, who are in the, playing the same game that you're playing. And so your language is different. You're not, you're not aware of the language of tennis. You're not aware of the language of the chess players. You're only aware of the language of the group to which you belong. And in that group, the game is you know, power, control, prestige, and privilege. And that's literally the game. And they're totally invested in the game. And they're not open to data from the outside so very, very often. And so we all get caught in our own little version of the game. And the only version of the game that really makes sense is there's only one reason why we're on planet Earth. And it is to learn to love in all circumstances. And so all the other games we play are kind of, they're ridiculous little games. You know, self-esteem issues or privileged positions or more money. You know, it's a question of us waking up as individuals and asking, is the game I'm playing really the purpose for which I came down here? So I differentiate between uh, values and uh, ideals. They're used synonymously, those two terms, but they're very different. Values are actually the things that drive our real-life behaviors, where ideals are the things that we would uh, aspire to if we were at the top of our game. And I like to use the, uh, the image of our um, Declaration of Independence, 1776, an extraordinary document, which starts off by telling us that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So there was an extraordinary idea. When you look at the values of the people who created that document even, the values were very different. They had slaves. Slavery wouldn't be abolished for 100 years after that. Women did not get to vote for 150 years after that. And in that very same document, the Native American population is referred to as savages. So we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal as long as they're white landowners, you know, and not Native Americans or blacks or women. So it took us 200 years to begin to bridge the gap between the ideal and the values. Uh, and so it becomes really important for every one of us to look at what are my values? Right? Is it really about love? And if it's about love, are my values actually making me live in that fashion? Or am I compromising my ideals in order to kind of act out of my values? Well, let's talk about those values then in relation to these folks who have to stand in front of a mirror when they brush their teeth just like the rest of us, or if not in front of the mirror brushing their teeth, in front of the mirror when they comb their hair. Those folks buying the house for a billion and a half, do not, they have religion? Is religion only for the masses? Is it, a, is it being perpetrated upon the masses as a, as a soporific in order to keep them in line while these oligarchs run the show? Or does religion reach out into the, the, the extremely wealthy as well? Do we have reason to believe 
that that the that the people at the very top of the financial heap believe less in God than the rest of the people? Um, they believe in a different God. And so when you look at the history of religion, religion um, is often has actually been invented. You know, we, we say that we're built in God's image and likeness. The truth is that we've created God in our image and likeness, and we've created religions in our image and likeness. And so beginning with the, uh, the um, agrarian revolution you know, in 3000 B.C., Religions very often were created in order to keep, as you mentioned, to keep the crowd in a soporific, you know, state. And so it was to shore up the aristocracy. And very, very often they've manipulated religions, even right down to wrong times. When you look, for instance, at liberation theology, which emerged in South America and Mesoamerica in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, where they, there was... They examined the Christian scriptures and saw that Christ had opted for what they call a preferential option for the poor, and that the Gospels speak about Christ's ministry being about healing sickness and preaching good news and reaching out to the impoverished and saying stuff like, it is harder for a rich man to get to heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And this was totally shocking to the aristocracy and the leader, the religious leadership of the time, because it's turning the apple cart upside down. But when liberation theologians in South America began, you know, offering that exegesis and that interpretation of the Christian scriptures, the Vatican stepped in, and a lot of these guys were excommunicated or defrocked. And so religion very often, unfortunately, has been co-opted, you know, by the aristocracy and, and pressed into service in a way to keep the, the masses silent. Now, I differentiate between religion and spirituality. Spirituality actually is uh, is a kind of a, the the basic impulse of the human soul, where religion very very often is just a sociological arrangement to keep the people in power on the top. Does the Pope care about the poor? I think this present guy is really good. Uh, Francis is really really good. I think um, before that we had a series of uh, pol- politicians. You know, who were, in order to protect the institution, were, play, were prepared to play ball with all kinds of despots, whether they were despots from capitalist countries or communist countries. And so that the, the primary agenda was, you know, creating greater numbers of the faithful, quote unquote, you know, and uh, keeping some kind of privileged position for their own particular institution whether that was the Roman Catholic Church or it was, you know, the, the Muslim, you know, hierarchy. Um, but that I think this guy, Francis, actually is amazing. And it's, I, I'm amazed, actually, he's managed to survive so long. And I think he's touching a real nerve, you know, and among the Christian world and outside the Christian world of people who are deeply spiritual rather than just committed to the wrong form of institutionalized religion. Do you think he has the power to send out word to the priests around the world in terms of what we're talking about? Just, for example, the poor? Because certainly the poor were, were, were important to Jesus. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think he's actually demonstrated it in his choice of living arrangements. My understanding is that he refused to take residence in the papal apartments and is living in a, kind of a, within a community. And that actually, on the day of his election, Instead of being driven back, you know, to his palace in the limousine, he went back in the bus, you know, with the rest of the delegates. And so he's, he's demonstrating in his life, and he seems to be using um, very, very ordinary means to get the message out. Typically, popes resort to what are called papal bulls, 
these very, very kind of um, uh, high-class documents which are vetted by the Curia to teach the, the, the Catholic faithful throughout the world. And they're very heavily censored by these bureaucrats. He's been doing an end run. He's not issuing these things, and he's using kind of just spontaneous speeches to kind of get his message through. So I have, a, I have a, lot of, a lot of respect for this particular guy. In my reading about Jesus, and please help me here, because yours, your knowledge in this is vast and, and mine is, 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 is small. But in my reading of, uh, about Jesus, I read that he grew up and lived for most of his life in, a, in what we would consider to be a dirt poor town that had a few hundred people and they had very little of anything. And then when he eventually walked to a nearby city, to a city, an actual city, and he saw the way people were living in this city, it was there that he, that he felt the calling. Is, is, there, is there some accuracy in this from your point of view? Well, it's, a, it's a, an interesting thesis, Richard. He would, of course, um, he would have been very much off there with, uh, with Jerusalem as a young boy of 12 and above. He would have been, it would be incumbent upon him as, a, as a, uh, an Orthodox Jewish boy to go to Jerusalem uh, for feasts every year. So he would have gone from a little village in Nazareth down to Jerusalem, which was have been maybe a three-day journey. And certainly Jerusalem at the time you know, was a fairly big city. Although the population, it was an interesting population at the time of Christ, the residential population was about 40,000. But on the great uh, feast days, it would swell to about one and a half million as Jews from all over Israel and from all over the diaspora would come for the great festivals. And that was actually the time when the Romans would get very, very antsy. And that's where they'd bring in the legions from uh, the coast. Uh, to make sure that anything didn't happen while there was a, a huge upsurge in the, in the numbers. So he would have seen, you know, a fairly big city, Jerusalem, from the age of 12 onwards. And he would have been able to see then the temple that Herod built. I heard, I've read that, that, that Herod had 18,000 people living in the temple. Right. So it's interesting. Uh, there were two temples. The first temple was built by Solomon and was completed about 930 B.C., but it was destroyed by the Babylonians. They destroyed the temple in 587 BC. And then the last two tribes of Israel were taken into exile in Babylon. But then the Persian Empire overthrew the Babylonians in 529 BC and released a remnant of the Jewish nation to go back into Israel. Now, in actual fact, only 24,000 chose to go back. The rest have opted to continue to live in, in, uh, in Babylon. So those who came back started the second temple, and they began building it in 515 BC. But it was a much more, a much scaled-down version of Solomon's version. But then, around the time of Christ, you know, Herod was called Herod the Great. You know, began a 37-year-long uh, period of uh, upgrading the temple. Yes. And at the time of Christ, you know, there's a lot of a lot of building uh, going on in the temple, and a lot of uh, great improvements. And Christ actually got into big trouble at one stage. He said, um, people are you know, asking him to admire the building that's going on. And he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. And that was actually used at his trial as evidence that he was a, um, some kind of a domestic terrorist who was intending on destroying the temple. He was talking, of course, about his own incarnation. And he was talking about uh, death and resurrection and you know um, enlightenment, but it was being construed as a kind of a domestic terrorist threat. But, but yeah, he would have seen the great works uh, that uh, Herod had initiated 37 years before in to, to upgrade this temple. So let's segue now from Jesus being called a terrorist 
because uh, of his feelings, sentiments, and thoughts about about the opulence uh, of some people compared to the impoverished others. Let's let's segue from him being Jesus being called the terrorist to our present day in the United States. This thing called the Patriot Act. What are your thoughts about? the use of the Patriot Act on our citizens and our value system. I think it is absolutely disgusting. And I think there are there are two there are two kinds of law. There's are there are laws which are in alignment with cosmic laws and with the laws of love. And there are laws which are just a total human institution and Christ invade mightily against these laws. You know, as a as a, a God fearing Jewish man, Christ would have been expected to know and to keep all 613 precepts of Torah. And they had to do with every facet of uh, Jewish life. Everything from uh, what kind of ablutions you had to perform after you came home from the marketplace, you know, to what kind of work you could do on the Sabbath. And he drove a coach and four through that, saying very, very famously at one stage, he said, if you, you know, if you were to take those 613 precepts, the single most important one had to do with uh, uh, the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. And by the Sabbath, he was talking about not just that single precept, but all 613 precepts. In other words, he's saying laws are ba- made in order to try to regulate human relationships. Humans are not made to obey laws. But we're multiplying laws. It's almost impossible not to be a lawbreaker at this stage. There are just hundreds of laws, new laws put on the statute books every time. So I differentiate between laws which literally, you know, incorporate into social relationships how the cosmos works and how law works. Those are good laws. Laws which are merely about kind of privileging a particular group, you know, are creating kind of privilege or power for a little oligarchy are bad laws and they need to be broken. And the Patriot Law is primary among them. It's a disgusting piece of legislation foisted upon the American population by a little oligarchy. How does one have the courage alone to break these laws that are meaningless? Or should we band in groups and break the laws together en masse? What are we to do about this, Sean? Both of the above. And so it's interesting to me that there are actually city councils, you know, throughout the United States right now who have put it on record that they're not going to comply with regulations, particular regulations of the Patriot Act. And so there is a groundswell uh, building. And there's also, you know, individual people having the courage to stand up and be counted and, you know, call a spade a spade and, you know, realize that this is like, this is the, the gradual erosion of our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and our, you know, status as children of God. And we need to stand up to that as much as, as much as other great leaders in the past have done so. You know, I don't mean to be pessimistic in, in pointing out that the stratification, the socioeconomic stratification that's going on in this country, as you well know, is pushing masses, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, pushing them from the middle class down into the lower class. As this occurs, people less and less are able to think the way you're talking and the way I'm talking because they're much more preoccupied, as the people at the top would like them to be, they're much more preoccupied with shelter and food and basic necessities. 
this is almost a purposeful design because when people are caught up totally with, with shelter, food, warmth, taking care of their children, there's no room to be thinking about opposing laws, changing government, or dealing with Citizens United, which turned, as you well know, that turned uh, gave citizenship to corporations and some believe is, was the, the end of our, of our republic. Right. I, I, told, I told you what you're saying. And this is always the fourth, this is the third leading to the fourth stage of the, uh, the stages of empire, as I, show, as I pointed out with the, uh, the great Chinese empire from 4000 BC to 1949. It goes through these four phases again and again and again. The hero, the sage, the merchant, and the chaos. And we're in the merchant into the chaotic piece of it. Now, you can see history then, you know, as a kind of a rust, a cycle that we just revisit again and again and again. And we think that the ideal is some kind of a straight-line evolutionary trajectory that takes us from more violence to less violence and more poverty to less poverty. I see it actually as a combination. When you cross-fertilize a straight line with a circle, what you get is a spiral. And so a spiral is something that revisits the same areas again and again and again, but from a higher perspective each time. And so, for instance, in your individual life, you know, you're going to wrestle with three or four major kinds of issues in the course of your life, Richard, as I will. But every time you revisit them, if you're really consciously trying to grow, although you revisit the same kinds of issues, you'll deal with them much more adroitly each time. And so, although you appear to be going around in a circle, you're actually going in a spiral. And that is what I see. In our times, we're revisiting the same issue that the Chinese, there were 23 Chinese dynasties in that 4,000 year period. Some of them lasted only 14 years, one of them lasting 800 years. But they revisited the same issues, but they dealt with them in different ways. And the great privilege of our time is that the very technology that's allowing the oligarchy to try to oppress us is also providing us with the tools to disseminate information and to organize protests. And so what I see is that we're in a stage, and we're certainly in the merchant, the chaos stage, but it's in a spiral. It is not in a rust. And that programs like yours and, you know, men with courage like you, you know, and media outlets like maybe Coast to Coast or people like that are providing an opportunity for people to join in the evolution revolution, which is not about that punitive revenge because everybody needs to be made part of the solution. It can't be a question just trading one a group of oligarchs yeah, and overthrowing them, because well, I've seen that in my time in Africa, that if you violently overthrow um, an oligarchy, all you do is you enshrine violence as the way to gain and maintain control, and so the next group just becomes what, you know, what they've ousted. And so this was the great message of, of Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. and Jesus Christ, that the only way you overcome tyranny and greed and violence is with compassion and love and courage. We have to be the courage to stand up and be counted, but that has, always has to be done with compassion and with love, even for the perpetrators. Because if you overthrow violence with violence, then you end up with violence. You've enshrined it. You've, yeah. You've assert it. 
I, oh, I understand. I, I, I see that uh, uh, very much so in my own life, because in, uh, in 1959, I went down to, uh, to Cuba to, uh, quote, uh, you know, uh, join, the revo- join the revolution, because uh, I, I, Fidel, I thought, was an idealist, and he was going to overthrow this gangster Batista who was uh, enslaving the entire island. But we saw what happened because then Fidel used violence to overthrow violence and, and he ended up as a dictator, much to my great disappointment in my life. Absolutely. There's, there's, an, old, there's an old Hindu proverb that says, you know, you come across, your house goes on fire and you're trying to out it and you grab a, a, a tin of kerosene and you think that because kerosene is waste, it's going to out the flames, and you throw the kerosene on it, all you do is you're creating a conflagration. And so when we throw anger on injustice, all we do is we make sure the house burns down even faster. We've got just a two and a half minutes left here, Sean, so I'd like to talk about two things. One, I hear you're coming to the, uh, to the city of Fort Bragg to Spirit House uh, sometime soon. Is it this week that you're coming? Actually, tomorrow night. I'm going to be at Spirit House in uh, Fort Bragg tomorrow night. I think the session begins at 7, 7 p.m. Spirit House in Fort Bragg. I'm sure if you Google Spirit House, it's a nonprofit uh, organization uh, in Fort Bragg. You can find it. And your uh, father, Dr. Sean O'Leary, will be there. In one minute, what would you like to leave us with today? Uh, give us something upbeat that we can leave the program with, please. I'm going to finish with this statement, Richard. I'm going to go poetic for a few minutes. I think human beings are droplets of love that have been wrung from the heart of God for the crucifixion of incarnation and for the resurrection of enlightenment. We're beings meant to go back to love. Thank you very much. I look forward to meeting you in person and to having you back on our program in the future. It's been a rare privilege to have you with us today. It's great to speak with your interest and to speak to your audience. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike DeLora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm